from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Friends, it is a delight to be with you in worship. I am sincerely grateful for your attendance today. For those of you who are streaming at home or will watch this later, we are grateful for your presence with us digitally and invite you back as soon as you can be here to be with us presently. A couple of things I want to share with you as your minister. We've all been watching the news and to various degrees have been alarmed by this thing called the coronavirus. Here's what I want to say to you as a spiritual leader of this congregation. The meme that says, keep calm and wash your hands seems apropos. I want to encourage you all not to lose your hats here. Let's be calm. We know that God is God. Raising the alarm is the duty of anybody uh, in the medical world because if it gets bad, then they will at least have sounded the trumpet. But let's not get over, um, let's not get over out of control about this, okay? Can we all agree? Secondly, um, each week, if it starts spreading more and more to Georgia, which, which it hasn't yet, we will continue on carrying a plan for your health and safety. The first thing you'll see is probably more hand sanitizer. I'm serious. If it gets worse, we might say, let's not shake hands, okay? But in all things, judge for yourself. If you're feeling under the weather, please, we have streaming. Stream with us. You don't need to bring it. If you are a person who's in a, um, uh, uh, a segment of our population, that's my sister who's coughing down here. That's a 12-month-a-year cough, by the way. She's, watch, I'm going to join you. <coughs> Thank you. It was like a sympathy cough building in me. If you are a part of the uh, demographic that is vulnerable, please be cautious and care for yourself. In the worst-case scenario, they shut down Atlanta for a week. We have streaming. I will preach to you from my dining room table. Agreed? But the point is, is we have nothing to fear because God is God and God is in control, and we will walk intelligently through this, and hopefully it's nothing. Amen? All right. That said, I also want to thank uh, Reverend Chambers for adding the alleluia 
during communion. I'm grateful for that because it reminds us that we do our best to focus our attention in Lent on Jesus, but we're humans and sometimes we stumble, but God is God, right? And I told him there are far many worse words he could have said during communion than hallelujah. Let us pray together. Creator God, we are grateful for the life that you have given us. And we confess there are many ways that we have not necessarily lived well or treated that gift with faithfulness. Indeed, we have walked away as a human race from your love. But we confess as a church and believe in our hearts and say now together that you sent your son Christ into our midst to reconcile us unto yourself to cultivate in our hearts a desire for your ways and not the ways that we have created. We are grateful for this gift. In like manner, you have sent your Holy Spirit to us as a guide and friend, a counselor, a convictor. Send your Spirit freshly in this hour, God, for you, and I know I, without you I can do nothing. Send your Spirit to cultivate in us a community of care as we engage this well-worn story of the temptation of your Son. And let it live in our hearts in a new way today, that it would refresh our minds to what real temptation is, and how we might live more like Christ because of studying it together. It's in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus, that all people say, Amen. I've told you of my friend before, but the story bears repeating. One of my theology professors married an enchanting woman from Eastern Europe, and while they were engaged, Colleen and I had a double date with them. We really sat <clears throat> angle to angle and mostly spoke to uh, male and, and female amongst the female. I talked to my professor. And every now and again, I could overhear Colleen engaging his fiance on what life was like, not only in Eastern Europe, but a country that was communist and ideologically atheist. That was an interesting thing to hear or overhear. It, it wasn't the case that the country became atheist when she was a little child, so she'd gone from being in church to no church. It, it was rather the case that the, the country was communist for some time, so she was born into a world of unbelief. Churches were just the big, beautiful, old, superstitious buildings. I heard her say that her and her friends came to the notion of God because they read a biography about Michael Jackson, American icon. And in there, there's a character named God. So her and her friends set to studying about this God, and she happened to find deep in the bottom of some drawer of some closet an old, overlooked, dismissed family Bible. She started reading St. John's Gospel one late night, and she poured over the pages, and she explained that she had what can only be described as a spiritual or mystical experience. And then she said this. Mind you, I'm talking to her fiancé the whole time, but I could overhear her say, and then the persecution started happening. Excuse me, what? I interrupted my conversation partner. I, I, I needed to turn my attention to this. There are some things and some phrases said that make you do an about face, that make you turn a corner and say, excuse me, what? 
Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 begins that way. You see, up to this point, we've been hearing about the coming of the Christ child, his growth, and even his baptism. And then in some translations, verse, chapter 4, verse 1 says, then, it's a small word, but it's powerful, then Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Excuse me, what? I need to focus more on what's going on in the story. Indeed, it carries on just like that. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And just like that, Jesus takes on his earthly ministry. And that's how the rest of the scriptures go in Matthew. It sets about what he's doing here in the world, but it starts with his temptation story. It's highly symbolic, I'll have you know. Jesus going out into the wilderness to, to fast for 40 days as he prepares for ministry is reminiscent of the ancient people of God as they journeyed in the same wilderness for 40 years, not with a surplus of food, but just enough. It tips us off to the idea that Jesus is fulfilling and completing the vocation of Israel. He is the meaning of the people of God. When Abraham hears in his covenant in Genesis 1, 12, 1 through 3, that you will have a people and they will become a nation, they'll be a blessing to the world, Jesus is becoming that blessing for the entire world. Jesus takes on the vocation and ministry of Israel, and the symbol is bearing witness to that while he's fasting, not eating for 40 days. It tells us that he's tempted by the devil. And these temptations have been studied for the centuries, people wondering, what do they mean? And isn't it curious that the devil knows Scripture? And, and all kinds of unique observations. This morning, I want to ask this question, just simply, what are the meanings of these temptations? And can they teach us something of how we are attempted in our own lives and our own time? First, I think I need to begin with a praises on the concept of the devil. I think all too often, people of faith feel as though they have the devil in full as a character, and that that character is well understood. But we often call the devil Satan, and sometimes Lucifer, and sometimes the fallen one, and sometimes the child of light, and, and sometimes Beelzebul, and sometimes other names, which should indicate to us that maybe the concept of the devil isn't as plain and clear as we thought. Sometimes in the Old, Old Testament, we find the devil simply being a part of the court of God, like a prosecuting attorney. At other times, there's an anthropomorphized snake that we identify, and, and then we attach other stories from the tradition that, that this, is, this is the Satan, the Lucifer, the fallen angel who has led a rebellion in heaven and now is leading a rebellion on earth. The problem is the Bible doesn't tell us any of that. There are so many different stories saying so many different parts and pictures. In fact, not to confuse you further, but a lot of that tradition about who the devil or who Satan is comes from a book that no longer exists. We can't find it. How do we know what the book says? We have ancient commentators who comment on that book, and we have then discerned what its meanings were. All I'm trying to say is that the concept of the devil is a mite tricky. And for me, I will tell you one assumption I have, one 
starting place I usually go when I want to kind of understand the heart of God and the world. I just go straight to Christ. And so who is the devil here in relationship to Jesus? And maybe that will shed more light. I hope it will for you in a moment. But secondly, in my preamble, I need to say this as well. What is evil? For we often think of Satan, the devil, whatever, and associate those characters with evil. But what is evil? Do you have a definition for it? I used to have a definition for it until I read the works of St. Augustine, and then I thought his are far better than mine. I'll take his on instead. Augustine says something rather complicated. He says the evil is privatio boni, which is Latin, and it means privation of the good. I can tell what you're thinking. Big deal, you just translated Latin. That doesn't help me understand it anymore. True, those words are confusing. What does he mean by privation of the good? Let's start this way. If God creates everything and calls it good, as the Genesis narrative tells us, and when it's together, it's very good, there is no room for evil. There is no room for a remainder that is bad. Everything is simply good. So for the Christian tradition, evil actually is nothing new added to it. It's not a new element. It's not substantive. It is just when good things are perverted or manipulated or misused. Evil is the privation of the good. Some are want to say that evil is nothing or, or no thing. Follow me. This means the evil is not a substance in the universe hovering around like a force, like the dark side in Star Wars, or a big black cloud called the nothing and never-ending story. Evil doesn't have its own value that way. It can't act on you accidentally when you walk around a corner. It can't come upon you when you least expect it. It's not a thing. It's more like a cavity in your tooth eroding goodness away or like a hole in your sock. Evil can only ever be good things used wrongly or manipulated or perverted or twisted. This has led the great American theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas to say, It is significant, therefore, to recognize that the devil's only viable mode of operations is to tempt the devil can only be a parasite, which means that the devil is only as strong as the one he tempts. To me, this is good news of great joy for you today. Because if you're like me, you've had not an ancient understanding of the devil, but a more, a more medieval one that's mixed with our modern one, and we have had Hollywood to put a crown on top of it. And the devil, or that which is evil, is something that is almost omnipresent, almost a co-equal to God, a balance of God everywhere at all times, can come upon me against my will at all times, can take me over against my will at all times. But if evil has no substance, just good things turn poorly, that means the devil can only ever be a tempter can only tempt you, can only make you miss the mark. Here in our story, the devil tempts the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And I understand that the 
Savior that we have has a particular calling that's unique to us, but it follows the same pattern that the devil uses to tempt us. My suggestion is that if we look at each temptation, I believe that the nature of each one of these three is the same. Expediency. Someone once told me that sin, the nature of sin is where wrong things were put, or right things were put in the wrong order. Desiring good things in the wrong time. I think that might be right. Consider the first temptation. The devil in the wilderness during Jesus' great 40-day fast tempts him with the most lowest hanging fruit sort of temptation. Food. Food. Jesus is famished. He's been going without food for days. And the devil's there saying, I know you wanted to go 40 days. You've already gone so many. This is heroic. You're the son of God. Just turn these stones into bread. No one's going to mind. I know that temptation. I know that during Lent. I was reminded before we came in for worship that last year was the the first year one of our members knew that Sunday was kind of a feast day in Lent, or they called it a cheat day. And I've talked about that from the pulpit. It's like a little Easter, but if I'm very confessional this morning, I will tell you that there have been many Lents where I've given up the same things you have. It could be alcohol. It could be treats and sweets. It could be coffee. I've given up meat before. I've given up all these things. And then Sunday comes around, and I indulge in those things. But here's the truth of the life of a minister. There's always something going on. It's always a party. It's always on Saturday. So Sunday's my feast day, but Saturday too, you know. I'll just, I, we're with everybody from church. Let's have that cupcake at the birthday party. And then I start thinking, you know what? <laughs> Friday's my day off. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. And then Thursday comes around. I'm like, Thursday's kind of my Friday night. <laughs> there have been many Lents where <laughs> um, I've, I've fallen to that kind of logic. For whatever reason, Jesus won't fall to that logic. Even though if he did, he would show amazing proof to the world of his power. He could take stones and make them bread. No, he stays the course. And so Satan, or rather the devil, tempts later. The second temptation is to take control of the temple. The scriptures tell us that the devil takes Jesus really high up on top of the great temple, the great house of God. Imagine the roof of this grand sanctuary. Now, I've heard this preached a hundred times, and a hundred out of a hundred have suggested this is an attempt to make the Son of God commit suicide. I don't think that's right. What the devil says to Jesus is, hey, you're the Son of God, you're the Messiah, throw yourself off from here, you know, below where there's all these people coming to the temple. And because you are who you are, God will send all his angelic hosts, and they will come down flying with their swords and their their wings, and it'll be beautiful, and they'll pick you up, they'll raise you up. And do you know what that would do? My suggestion is that would prove to every onlooker that the person being saved by God's angels might in fact be more important than all those high priests in the temple. 
If you do this, it will allow you to take control of the most holy site in Israel, and therefore you can show everybody who you really are. Just go ahead and let's just do that now, Jesus. Let's get it out of the way. Take your place now. Most of you know that I was the associate minister here before I became the senior minister, and then I was called to be your interim. And there was a real question of whether or not I moved my study from the study in the hall down to the senior minister's study. And I really remember calling up several people asking their advice because everyone I talked to had a different point of view. And one of my mentors said to me, don't you dare move your stuff down the hallway. Stay where you are until the church asks you to move down there. That was good advice because that advice had the heart of Jesus. Don't step out too soon. The devil was tempting him with expediency. That's like the third temptation too, isn't it? He takes him high on a mountain and shows him all the ancient civilizations of the world. My favorite stained glass window from an artistic perspective is, is right here to my right. You see Jesus is being baptized by John and then right out of it, there's this small panel where you can see him shying away from a figure that's dark and purpley. That's the devil over his shoulder, tempting Jesus. And below the feet of Jesus in the gray cloud-like material are etched all the ancient civilizations of the world. Most people don't notice it until it's pointed out to them. That is how subtle it is. Which reminds me, because the devil is so subtle. What big, what, why would it be a big deal if the devil delivered all the kingdoms to Jesus Christ, who is nothing if not the kingdom bringer of God that's going to rule and reign over every kingdom. But the devil simply says, why wait? Take it now. You can have it now. Why wait? Expediency. A couple of observations, my friends. These are interesting to me. One is noted the devil does use Scripture to tempt Jesus but that's not very interesting. Why shouldn't the devil know Scripture? What's interesting to me is that the devil's reading of Scripture is almost always presuming to know the intent of God or some deeper esoteric truth behind the teachings. Whereas when you look at the Scripture that Jesus quotes, his is always a plain-faced reading of the story. Jesus, as the Son of God, as the kingdom bringer of God, already knows the heart of God and will not be deterred by the devil's cunning. Which leads me to the second interesting observation. What is that cunning of the devil? The cunning is this. All he is tempting Jesus with is the right things, but in the wrong time. His temptation is impatience. Again, that great theologian of, a, of our country who's still living and working, Stanley Hauerwas, writes this, the devil is another name for our impatience. The devil is another name for our impatience. And I think Stanley Hauerwas has it right there. And it makes me ask, in what ways do you and I, or let me just say, what ways do I try to expedite the will of God in this world and in so doing, in some manner, succumb to wrongdoing? 
In what ways are we impatient for, for good things, things God wants in this world, and, and in so doing, demonstrate that we fall and pray to the devil? It is Lent. Lent's a time of confession and penitence, so let's take a few from Christian history. In the not-so-distant history, there have been many cases of groups that were called Christian terrorists. I, those words don't make sense put together. But there are groups out there who have taken it upon themselves to bomb abortion clinics or to kill abortion doctors for the sake of some good end of protecting the lives of the unborn, what was done in the process. I know that's close to home, so let me remove ourselves further for the sake of our comfort. For some good end of producing a country and economies, the church has supported slavery and segregation in churches. Today, almost everywhere you go, there's, le there's a lament. Why aren't our churches more multi-ethnic and multi-racial? Usually this is spoken of by white churches. And the answer is because the white church invented the black church. That's a true story. I'm not making that up. Or even more. We have a history of missionary work in other countries that did forced conversions. For the good and hopeful end of bringing the kingdom of God to other people, there have been times where some of us have been bad actors because they were impatient and forced conversion. I know these are all dark things I'm mentioning to you, but temptation is dark. This all has implications for us, that the devil still is tempting us with good things, but in the wrong time, and therefore pushes us long, along impatiently, grasping to make the world over, rather than letting God use us to make the world over. And it has implications for how we vote, though I won't speak to that here. It has implications for how we view the world and how we assess the state of things. It has implications for what we consider to be the greatest problem we face and the greatest solution to that problem. Church, we are kingdom people. We are kingdom people. So let us know what God wants. That's our prayer. God, what do you want? But let us not be impatient so that we might deal in devilish things for what we perceive to be the greater good. There is time for us to keep taking the next faithful step to do the next loving thing to bring healing to the next broken part of this creation. God bless you.